Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Feeling Seen, the podcast that talks about the movies that make us feel seen. And today, it's one of those treats where I get to have somebody sitting alongside me whose job is the scholarly endeavor of film. And it's such a highlight when you have somebody come on whose life is the comparative literature game of cinema because my background's in journalism. And then we get a we get to kind of go in between the lines together. It's a lot of fun. Um, his new book, The Male Gazed on Hunks, Heartthrobs, and What Pop Culture Taught Me About Desiring Men. Manuel Betancourt is the author. He's here with me today. He previously wrote the 33 and a third installment, Judy at Carnegie Hall. He is a film critic. He is a film commenter. Uh, You might have also seen some of his Eisner-nominated writing in the Cardboard Kingdom graphic novel series. Maybe seen his byline in New York Times, the LA Times, Atlantic, a whole bunch of other, like, blue-chip publications. Manuel, (laughs) what else do I need to tell the people to give them a background on you before we get started today? I think that those are all great uh, places to start. I think the only thing I would add is because I find that sort of my fun fact about me is that I'm I, I was born and raised in Colombia, and so I'm. Oh, okay, yeah. fantastic. <laughs> now the male gazed. Tell me, how long have you been in a relationship with this book? Like books take a long time. How long has this one been living with you prior to it arriving in the world? Yeah, it has been a long time. I. I I think the first time I sort of sat down to sort of think, like try to write down these, because I've been thinking about these ideas a lot. And yeah. I feel like I've been uh, thinking about this since I was a teenager. And yeah. that's, it's sort of the central question of the book. Like what, ha- what have I been taught about men <laughs> from pop culture? But yeah. I really sat down to sort of sketch it out in summer 2019. And then I really couldn't crack it. And then I mm. set it aside and then, uh, a little pandemic hit, and mm. then uh, my freelance <laughs> assignments as a critic sort of dried up a little bit. Yep. So I had a lot of free time. Uh, and so I sat down in earnest to write the proposal. And then from there on, it took like some months to get an agent and then some months to get a publisher. And I think I submitted the final draft February 2022, so last year. So it's been it's been a years-long process, but also a lifelong process in yes. some ways. <laughs> and one of the key moments or the aha moments that I had while I was writing the book was realizing that the question that I was asking and that I apparently had been asking for years and decades was, Mm -hmm. do I want him or do I want to be him? Mm -hmm. The great queer unifying question. Yes, Yes. 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 And I had never sort of framed it that way, but I was like, oh, that was exact. That's exactly what I've been asking myself for years Mm -hmm. and years on end. And then trying to find ways of answering that chapter to chapter and character to character. Um, I think the thing that would have shocked teenage Manuel was how much my thinking and also the book ends up trying to think about fluidity and gender bending Mm. and really not pitting masculinity against femininity, but trying to find sort of a middle ground or a generative way in which the two can be united. I think as a teenager, I was like very... No, I was bullied because I was a little bit more effeminate and sure. I had a sort of a limp wrist and I was really into mm. sports. Um, and so it's taken decades of unlearning a lot of that yes. and unlearning that shame. And I think I wanted the book to sort of reflect that, which is why like the final chapter of the book is all about drag and drag race. Because mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I really wanted that to be sort of the horizon and be like, I'm still working on it. But uh, mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the, the kind of thing that I wanted to sort of really focus on as the end point. It's I've been I've been having conversations recently with a with a friend in, in like her early 20s. And it's been fascinating to sort of have that like, you know, what at what point, you know, asking her like, at what point did you realize you had options? And yeah. the age is so much younger. 
than when I'm 38. Like, I'm an older millennial. And so, like, and, and just, like, the idea of how much earlier the possibility of options entered their life and the possibility of fluidity and the possibility of a world beyond even just gay and straight as a binary, just right. a world beyond binaries. Um, well, I guess as a as a millennial, it sounds like as a squarely in that wheelhouse millennial, before we get to the characters, the thing I have to ask is, how was it for you growing up amidst the extremely heterosexual but homoeroticized <laughs> uh, marketing style that was so prevalent in the homo-nationalist 2000s, but they gave us things like the Chris Evans photo shoot where oh he's God, soaked in bisexual <laughs> I mean, I don't know which one you're talking about. I could not <laughs> pick it out of a police line. Um. I don't know. I think it was from a flaunt magazine. Yeah. I don't even remember what, and, but like, oh my, even when those come around on the internet now, people are shocked all over again when they see them. So how was that very confusing onslaught of media for you and the odds? It is. It was confusing. And because it was, <laughs> I think I read a lot about it in the book because I was like, I was assaulted with those images of like, oh. finally men sort of we were being invited to gaze at them and to look at them erotically, but it was always, but I, as a gay man, you always felt like you were, you were like an interloper, like, oh, I'm mm-hmm. not, this is not for me. This is for women, maybe. <laughs> yeah. And then you look at they, it now, you're like, how could it be for anyone else? Well, because they were all shot by gay photographers, right? Like you're thinking <laughs> of like Bruce Weber and you're thinking of all these like Jean-Paul Gaultier, like all the Marquis Mark and all the Calvin Kleinats. They were yep. all David shot. David LaChapelle, Meredith Marcus, like these are not heterosexuals. Right, and they were clearly, uh, and so... That was sort of at the heart of the book. So I was like, oh my God, am I supposed to be looking at them? Am I allowed to look at them? Because I really, really want to look at them. Um, <laughs> and sort of, and then, but also realizing that there was a, a little bit of gatekeeping. Like I wasn't supposed to, but I was invited to. Um, and how do I download them onto my computer without people knowing? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Slowly waiting for those JPEGs to download. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of those photo shoots. I, there's, weirdly enough, I... I, I remember the Chris Evans ones, of course, and I, mm. I know all these like Calvin Klein ones, but I have this vivid image. There's a James Martin Gap ad where he's wearing, half wearing a sweater <laughs> and you can sort of see his chest. And it's like, it's so prim and proper because he's not really, like really naked, but it's still, yeah. it was the hint of the erotic. And, mm-hmm. and you know, one of my, one of my favorite, I'm going to sound like a academic asshole, but like one of my favorite Roland Bart quotes mm-hmm. is, is the most erotic part, not where the garment gapes. Mm. And so it's like when it's, there's a hint of something, when you're giving it away for free, it's sure. maybe too easy. Mm. Uh, you want to always, that's sort of that stripper sort of mentality. It's like you want to leave them <laughs> wanting more. And so I was always, I always love that. And the Chris Evans is perfect because the jeans are just low enough and everything is just <laughs> tight enough. Everything's uh, just. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'm glad we've gotten, uh, we've really gotten the warm up question out of the way, which is the Flaunt Magazine for <laughs> Sevens. <laughs> photo shoot uh not yet just not discussed that yet here on the feeling scene podcast so you're really allowing me to break new millennial ground i appreciate that now we can we can finally get to the characters that you have chosen please tell uh the folks at home who you have brought for us to discuss today this is very exciting stuff Okay, so I brought two, because I'm yes. apparently very uh, greedy, and they're played by two of my favorite actresses. Uh, so one was um, Jules in My Best Friend's Wedding, played by uh, the incomparable Julia Roberts. Mm. And the other one is oh. uh, Natalie Portman as Alice in Closer, which also stars 
Julia Roberts. <laughs> Julia one, Roberts. Of the, one of the best Julia Roberts performances of all time. Yes. yes one of the yes. definitive Julia Roberts performances, oh actually. God. And this is one of the definitive Natalie Portman performances. Somehow, like, Closer went out on TikTok or something last year at some point, because one of my mid-20s friends was like, she was she saw like a sexy clip of Closer. Mm. And then like it is a sexy movie, but she thought she was, I think, getting into like a deliberately erotic thriller. Oh. And then she was like, okay, that was good, but that was not that kind of sexy movie. I was like, sure was not. Yeah. yeah sure was um, not, friend. Yeah. I, every time I tell people that I love Alice and that Closer is like, if you want to get to know me, Closer is a movie wow. to watch. I mean, I I and I often say my best friend's writing in Closer. Like, those two are the ones to get to uh-huh. know me. But then people are appalled when they watch Closer and they're like, Manuel, why are you, <laughs> what are you telling me about you? Like, one of my boyfriends just, I think like just two weeks ago, he was like, I never told you, but I watched Closer last year when you told me this. And I was He's like, terrified. I've been about it since then, how to bring it up to you. Yeah. And I was like, wait, you didn't tell me you watched it? He was like, yeah, no, I didn't know. I was very scared. <laughs> <laughs> okay, since we're already on her, like, we're going to start with Alice. Okay. So now- yes. What was the moment of impact like when you saw it? Because, like, I remember, like, that, like, none of us were prepared for that. We went to the theater. I was in college, and it, like, it happened. And I feel like people weren't prepared for that movie, how that movie was going to make them feel. So they didn't really know what to do with it. But I remember just being, like, I was enthralled the entire time and uncomfortable with these actors who I had never felt that kind of discomfort around with, like, Julie Roberts and Natalie Portman. Like, what was it like for you? Yeah, I mean, I talk about a movie that's stayed with me. Like, I think about Closer probably almost daily. I mm-hmm. watch it constantly. My friend um, calls it my emotional cutting movie. <laughs> <laughs> so very apt. Yeah, I was like, if I'm going through a break, I was like, oh, I, I, should, I should put on Closer now. Um, wow. And what happened was like, I did watch it with a boyfriend and then broke up with them like two months <laughs> later. So it has this like, re- it has like a visceral kind of memory, visceral mm-hmm. kind of physical memory attached to it. When you're um, cleaning the slate or you're about to, you're going to watch closer. Yeah, yeah. And so, <laughs> so to me, I was hooked from the very first moment, like where Natalie comes to and she looks at the camera and just says, hello, stranger. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, hey. I am, whatever is happening here, <laughs> I, yes. Yes. Yep. Can't take my mind off of you. Hello, stranger. I can't take my mind off of you. And then it just kept getting uh, sadder and crueler and more sadistic and masochistic yep. and sexy, but in a really discomforting sort of way. Oh my God. Again, I've been thinking about this a lot also because, spoiler alert, my next book is called Hello, Stranger. Oh, okay. Well, fantastic. We saw the movie and I came home and I wrote down a quote. Because remember back then we did not have IMDb. We did not have like a way of like Googling all these things. (laughs) Uh, Whatever you remember was what stayed with you. So I I raced home and I wrote down on a piece of paper, lying is the most fun a girl can have without taking her clothes off. Her clothes off. Yes. But it's better if you do. And I taped (laughs) it. And it's so, I keep thinking, I was like, what a bizarre thing for like 20 something men all to do. And I taped it onto my full length mirror in my dorm room. Mm-hmm. It's the dorm room! In my yes. dorm room, yes. And and so, and it became sort of this like mantra, which again, not a great mantra to have as a 20 year old gay man who just came <laughs> out. Like, I was like, what, the, what, what were you thinking, Manuel? But I just found, I just loved this idea of 
lying as an armor. It's also the moment where she's the most honest, mm-hmm. where it is stripper mm-hmm. scene. She's like the most vulnerable. She most is naked. the most candid she is going to be in the entire movie in that scene. And then like it's only until you get to the end that you realize that is true. Yes, because she's just Jane. Um, she's just Jane. Alice, tell me something true. Lying's the most fun a girl can have without taking her clothes off. But it's better if you do. You're cold. You're all cold at heart. What do you have to do to get a bit of intimacy around here? Maybe next time I'll have worked on my intimacy. But so I love this idea of lying and having fun. And then I remember asking myself, like, could I have so much fun lying? Could I have so Uh much fun taking my clothes off? And I was like, I think so. (laughs) 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 And getting men like Clive Owen and Jude Law to look at me and to want Mm -hmm. me and to destroy their lives in the process. Yes, Um, yes. That seemed very alluring to me. Um, Again, great conversation to have with my therapist um, about what that (laughs) (laughs) meant then and what, what that means now. Um, but yeah, I just, it's the dialogue. Like, I just love, it's, it's such a beautifully constructed piece that you're just like Mm -hmm. going from like a flirtation scene to another flirtation scene to a breakup. Like those breakup scenes are also fantastic. And Julia in particular in that breakup scene with Clive Owen when she's yelling and she's yelling and he's yelling. It's just, oh yeah, I could watch this movie every single day. I probably should not. You did love me. I always love you. I hate hurting you. Why are you? Because I'm selfish. And I think I'll be happier with her. You won't. You'll miss me. No one will ever love you as much as I do. Why isn't love enough? I'm the one who leaves. I'm supposed to leave you. I'm the one who leaves. I am sort of helpless before a pretty girl with a problem. Like that's yeah. my thing. Um, <laughs> I, I'm I'm on the asexual spectrum. These this is not like a sexual pursuit for me, but like, I, and it's not a it's not an I'm going to save you. It's going to be an I'm going to be infinitely emotionally available for you, and we're going to do this together kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's like my animating force. Been a very successful series of pursuits for my entire life. Okay. Uh, and and every you know everybody leaves the better. But so like I am so susceptible to that. Alice cares. As soon as Alice, yeah. wounded Alice, small and beautiful and wounded Alice shows up, literally wounded, like gets hit by a car mm-hmm. in, in the beginning of this movie. And Jude Law, he just kind of like picks up this like little feral creature and he's yeah. going to help her get medical attention. And the cabbie asks him, like, who is she? And he says, like, she's mine. Like, he takes ownership over her immediately. And that's creepy. And that's not a thing I relate to. But like the notion <laughs> of like, being so ensorcelled by someone who you just know yeah. has that quality about them that bends gravity. And I wanted to hear from you about like in the in the, you know, connecting to the conversation of desire, the experience of a character like Alice, who has such a like force bending impact on the people around her and to like connect with the character yeah. who's just, it's just like, no, I, I, I think I want this power of desire. Like I know I will, like, how do I have this? Yes. And I think that's, that's what I keyed into. I mean, you know, in that first scene, um, Jude Law says that her euphemism, were he to write an obituary mm-hmm. about her is disarming. disarming. And she mm-hmm. says, that's not a euphemism. And he says, <laughs> no, no, it is. It is. And I, I keep thinking about that like that word a lot because she is very disarming because she mm-hmm. does seem to 
as soon as she arrives, like you were helpless yeah. in front of her. Like there's really only, you, as you can say, like it's just a, it's just a gravitational pull mm-hmm. in a very um, unassuming kind of way. Like she's yeah. not abrasive. She's not aggressive. She's just... She's and bruised, she's not she's helpless wounded. either. It's right. not a it's not a wounded bird thing. It's just something else that like you real you you it's like okay, I have a choice to involve myself with anything else or you. Mm-hmm. And now suddenly that you're an option, like nothing else is an option anymore. But yeah. I know not a thing about you. <laughs> and then everything I will learn about you may well be a fiction, which yeah. is the, which I think is also what's fascinating about this character is that she has this force around her and she can um, attract men like Larry and attract like men like Dan. And mm-hmm. she's doing it in a way that makes you feel that she's very authentic and letting you in, mm-hmm. but actually she's ensnaring you, right? Mm-hmm. And I think this is what is fascinating about the film is like at the beginning, you do think like there is a version of this world where she's a wounded bird, where she is bruised, where she mm-hmm. is, um, and she's going to be taken care of. Um, but you realize by the end of the film, like, no, she's been in control this entire time and everything mm-hmm. has been sort of a kind of performance. So that kind of disarming performance to me is always what thrills me about her. And here's where the fact that I had loved Natalie Portman before Closer. Yeah, and, you know, absolutely. I, I'd seen her in The Professional. We'd seen her in the Star Wars films. We'd seen her in Beautiful Girls. Like, these were films that I probably should not have been watching when I was a teenager. <laughs> um, we may have seen her girl. give birth in a Walmart at that point. Yes. Oh, Ashley Judd. Um, but, <laughs> but there was a sense of, like, you got to know her and that she she had always played these um, kind of wounded characters. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, you know, Garden State is around the corner and it's yeah. sort of in the, in the wheelhouse where you feel... Like there's an innocence around her, but the innocence is always tinged with the erotic. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's the professional in a nutshell. You're like, she's this girl, but she's a bird, but she's wounded, but she's also kind of a Lolita figure. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so what I loved about Closer is that it took everything we knew about Natalie and mm-hmm. sort of then weaponized it mm-hmm. uh, into this like kernel of eroticism and desire and fiction making that you could self-fashion yourself into anything any man could want of you which is what Mm -hmm. I think is one of the things that I love about Closer is like and again what I'm like thinking about for this next book is the stranger as a site of possibility the stranger Mm -hmm. meeting a stranger allows you to imagine yourself anew and this is what she keeps doing over and over again it's what she goes Mm -hmm. from different hairstyles she has a like red hair at the beginning and then she has that beautiful black bob Mm then she has the pink wig and then she has the curls at the end like she's constantly creating herself anew for those that may want her. Why'd you leave? Problems with a male. Boyfriend? Kind of. When you left him, just like that? It's the only way to leave. I don't love you anymore. Goodbye. Supposing you do still love them? You don't leave. You never left someone you still love? No. What Natalie Portman puts into that performance, I think one of my favorite parts about it is like I think it's a incredible sort of play out of like the power dynamic like the no mm. she's like the notion of a femme fatale without yes. ever actually being a femme fatale yeah. and like these men would probably r- blame blame Alice for perhaps ruining their lives to a degree for a period of time when they've ruined their own lives and yeah. she's been she's been a projector screen for them the entire time and she has been in completely autonomous she's been the one in control but she's given them nothing more than exactly what they wanted from her the right. entire time 
and they've wrecked themselves in the pursuit yeah. of getting it. And again, that's why I, that's why that stripper scene is so fascinating because it's, it's the sole moment where you can sort of see her coming through and she's trying to be honest, but because of the space and the context, mm-hmm. we're led to believe, or Larry's led to believe that all she's saying is doing that, that she's at that moment actually being a projector. She's mm-hmm. like, are you allowed to flirt with me? Oh no, I'm breaking all the rules. Are you just telling me that? <laughs> yes. Are you flirting with me? Maybe. Are you allowed to flirt with me? Sure. Really? No, I'm not. I'm breaking all the rules. You're mocking me. Yes, I'm allowed to flirt. Surprise my money from me. Surprise your money from you. I may do or say as I please. Except touch. We're not allowed to touch. So are you telling me everything that I want to hear? Or are you just telling me that you're telling me what do you want me to hear? And yeah. it's that play. And it's like, no, she's actually being honest. And you're just not <laughs> getting it. And it's such a sad moment for both of them. Because she's always... You know, at the end, I keep wondering, like, you know, what would she, what does she want? Because she does seem mm-hmm. to move sort of in this sort of a carefree kind of way, which is the other thing that I sort of really connected in a sort of aspirational moment. It's like she wakes up one day and doesn't love her boyfriend in New York, so she moves to London. And then yeah. she doesn't love, right? Like when you leave, when you don't love anyone, anyone you leave, that's what, that's her line. And mm-hmm. she keeps moving through the world and changing and has this sort of, kind of carefree attitude, which is kind of enviable that you mm-hmm. could move through the world with such ease. And she's like, I just have a knapsack. And that's, yeah. that's sure. Well, who needs things? I don't need things or pretty well, words. <laughs> a, a dear, a, a dear friend of mine, uh, we were talking about the movie, The Crush, and he was discussing how mm-hmm. he's a, he's a gay man. He's my age. And he was talking about how like watching that as, as a, as a young guy, as a kid, like, you know, The Crush comes out in 1995. We're like 10, 11, 12. We can see this for the first right. time. And we're not clocking the like power dynamic problem, especially not in the 90s when no one's telling us to think about that. But like what he really connected to in the character of Darian slash Adrian is he wanted so much to affect the kind of desire in men that she could as a young like knew he was gay but wasn't at any threshold of being able to admit that or disclose it what he saw in this like essentially erotic thriller heroine who is 15 at the time is just somebody who can make men change direction in order to pay attention to them and he saw that and he really wanted that and at a time like growing up i think as as millennials like we were not yet we were on the doorstep of broader conversations about more accessibility in like queer images and access to queer stories like the interesting aspect of being starved for representation in a one-to-one way means that there is a lot of fascinating as i've talked about on this podcast work creative genius work that yeah. has to happen for queer folks There's to imagine Im- themselves in places where they don't exist already yeah i think of it as sort of like imaginative play um yeah. and i always find that much more interesting than the one-to-one mirror moments mm-hmm. right like because I, I i never sit here and bemoan the fact that there's no colombian film critic on a television show that i could relate <laughs> yeah. to because um, I have Alice and I have Natalie and I have Julia and I have all of these, like, you know, I, I talk about the book, like the first chapter, the first moments in the, in the book are all about like how I love Maleficent. It's not uh-huh. that I like wanted to be Maleficent or wanted to see myself, but it was like there there were things about these images that as queer, I think queer people do it better than straight folks. Sorry, I'm sure there's great no, straight I, I folks will, out there. No, I will plant a flag in it and say we're better at that, yeah. Because um, there's a level of like, you have to be reading against the grain and reading against 
uh, and between the lines and there's a creative genius and there is a sort of an imagination that's happening that's rooted in empathy and rooted in compassion but also mm-hmm. rooted in imagination that like what are the kinds of mental gymnastics that I need to be doing to be like oh yes Betty Davis in All About Eve is the character that makes me feel seen I was like there's such <laughs> a jump from there and there yeah. is where I think a lot of like creative um, friction happens and so those mm-hmm. are the moments that I love the other thing that I love about Alice and I think tied to sort of this queer desires, like the entire movie is about how desire unravels you and how letting your Mm -hmm. desires be known Mm -hmm. ruins your life, right? Mm -hmm. You can meet someone and meet a photographer and then all of a sudden your relationship is gone and you're cheating and you can't let other people know. And like that these moments of what you're desiring, that that is a sort of a destructive force felt very real to someone who was like, had been closeted and who like Mm -hmm. letting their desires known may actually destroy your life, may actually upend it, and may actually Mm -hmm. require you to like pack your bags and leave and not have anything to show for it. And so I think that was also why, you know, as a 20-year-old, I had been out probably like two years or Mm -hmm. like as I came out in college and was like, that felt so real. And again, it's not in the film. Like the film is not a queer utopia. Like the the film is actually (laughs) quite uninterested in sort of queerness. It's not like, okay, gays, this one's for you. (laughs) Like pay attention in this scene. Yeah. But it was, but it is there, and it is there it for is. me. And there are there are pockets of moments. Um, and I've been reading actually the original play because I've never seen it, mm-hmm. and I love comparing and like what he got rid of and what he like changed. Um, this is a but, this is a Mike Nichols film, correct? Yes, yes, yes. Um, I mean, yeah, got it. Landed in the hands of a master. Oh my god! Talk about someone who's giving us queer um, <laughs> joy. You know, f- through decades again. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is like also like a, a seminal text for me. And I think we all want to be, we all want to be Liz Taylor in one way or another. We're going to take a quick break. Then we'll dive into the other movie and character Manuel has brought for us. And then finally, I will have one quick thing before I go about the women of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. It is a murderer's row in that film. And I've just got to give some shouts out to the ladies as we do on this podcast at the very end. Hey, Sydney, you're a physician and the co-host of Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine, right? That's true, Justin. Is it true that our medical history podcast is just as good as a visit to your primary care physician? No, Justin, that is absolutely not true. Uh, However, our podcast is funny and interesting and a great way to learn about the medical misdeeds of the past, as well as some current not so legit healthcare fads. So you're saying that by listening to our podcast, people will feel better. Sure. And isn't that the same reason that you go to the doctor? Well, uh, you could say that. And our podcast is free? Yes, it is free. You heard it here first, folks. Sawbones, Meryl Tour of Misguided Medicine, right here on Maximum Fun, just as good as going to the doctor. No, no, no. Still not just as good as going to the doctor, but but pretty good. It's up there. Please tell us what to tape about. Please tell us what to tape about. Please. Because <laughs> I'm Alex, and she's Katie, and we make Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. A podcast about the history and science behind seemingly ordinary things. We've done entire episodes about ham, or shoe sizes, or concrete, or the color beige. We need more ordinary stuff like that. Our Max Fun members suggest and pick our episode topics through Discord. So what do you wonder about? What do you wish you could start to find interesting? Make us tape your idea. And then hear the results on Secretly Incredibly Fascinating from MaximumFun.org.
to feeling seen. I'm talking to writer Manuel Betancourt, whose new book is called The Male Gazed. We've been talking about one character that made him feel seen, Natalie Portman's Alice in Closer. But now we're going to look at the other character that really pulled at his identity strings. And that is Julia Roberts as Jules in the classic 1997 romantic comedy, My Best Friend's Wedding. Did you see My Best Friend's Wedding before you're closer in your life or did you see it after? No, I saw it. I saw My Best Friend's Wedding when it came out. So it was 97. And I think one other, again, I loved Julia already. I, we probably watched Pretty Woman, you know, nonstop and a bunch of stuff. But at home, so in Colombia, in Bogota, we, uh, we had a satellite dish. We didn't have cable. Mm -hmm. And our satellite dish, for some reason, um, gave us pay-per-view channels but of mm-hmm. course, because we had, we didn't have like a pay-per-view cable box, or whatever. It just played movies that were available on pay-per-view on loop. Oh, so there was okay. one, so there was like a period of like five to six months <laughs> when we had various pay-per-view channels that just looped through movies. So one of them was Contact with Jodie Foster. <laughs> the other one was uh, Picture Perfect uh, with Jennifer Aniston. Wow. Um, George of the Jungle. And then My Best Friend's Wedding. So, <laughs> what a cacophony. Oh my God. It was, it was insane. <clears throat> so there was probably a period of like a six month period where I watched my best friend's wedding. I don't know, like once a day. Cause it was always, on. <laughs> it was always yeah. on and I could just like pick it up whenever. And so I not only watched it when it came out, I watched it incessantly when it came out. Cause I yeah. talk, I mean, I, I think it's one of the great, greatest romantic comedies of all time. I think I it's one of agree. Julia's, I, I think one of Julia's greatest performance right alongside, um, sort of closer. And funny, because I think of it also in terms of All About, All About Eve, because it's the one other movie where I saw a critic. Uh-huh, so, you know, yeah. There's Addison DeWitt on one end and All About Eve, <laughs> yeah. and then there's Jules, the restaurant food critic. Um, and it was one of those moments where it was like, oh, yeah, I could. <laughs> people do this, and people, like, critique, and they make a living. And I'm writing it up as inventive and... Confident. I was never into like critiquing food, but there was something about the fact that this is the world that she lived in and that she had an editor and like that she lived oh, in this yeah. world, like, she had an editor. Work. Having an editor, the most 90s thing you could have in a movie. <laughs> to have or be an editor. Yes. That seems so glamorous. You're either in publishing or art galleries in yes. the 1990s. Oh my God, there are so many of those. I was watching Sliver for the first time recently, the Sharon Stone erotic thriller. Mm-hmm. thriller and at the very beginning of the movie, she's checking out like a fabulous apartment and um, the... The woman asked her, she's like, so what do you do? And I was like, publishing. And she goes, oh, I work in publishing. I was like, yes, uh, yes, uh. when you just know. Yeah, yeah. There was so, it, it was weird how much publishing factors into romantic comedies. I don't know, <laughs> right? Like, how does, it, how does a guy in 10 days, like, critical, like, key thing is the fact that she's a writer. Yeah. Um, Devil Wears Prada. Like, I think there's something about the comedy and the sort of, like, that late, the Y2K moment. <laughs> Yeah, um, I guess they is. knew they, they knew there was dying, so they needed to sort of like yeah. capture it, the end of Rome. Yeah, um, this, this is on the way out, guys. We should really memorialize this. Yeah. <laughs> and then there are those who, of us who came after. And Let's do it know. anyway. Let's try yeah. this. It'll work for us. Yeah. Yeah. We're the exception. But Jules, Jules. Here's, here's the thing. Like, I fucking love this movie. And I think the most hilarious thing that I could have never known at the time when I watched it when I was young is that like, if I was watching that movie now, I would, that character would be like, so she's like 
56, right? <laughs> Jules is it's like 28. 28 years old. And it, like we open the beginning of this movie like she's a spinster and she is calling up her best friend because they have that pact like if neither of us is married by 30 like it's us like it we're, we're we'll go for it. He says swear when we're 28 if we've never married we marry each other. <laughs> we never talked about it again. I don't know what made me think of that. You're about to be 28 in three weeks right? How old is he? You think? Desperate to talk. And she like calls him because she wants to get out of the deal. Right. She wants to be like, oh no, I can't, I can't get married to him. And realizes Until. on the call, oh Jules, I met someone, and I'm getting married, and I need you to be in my wedding. And then her whole life becomes about. Oh my God, no, I was wrong to want to get out of the deal. I want him. He's the one. Dermot Mulroney is the one. Yes. And we're watching this as fucking children being like, that old unmarried lady, she better get this man. Otherwise, what's she going to do? She's done for. Julia Roberts is done for. (laughs) And Kimmy, Cameron Diaz's character, is 20 years old. Yeah, she's a child. She's she is a child. A child. And in that, I relate to Jules because she's like, you can't marry her. She's a child. Like, <laughs> yeah. She's still in college. And I was like, yes, yes, old, old lady. I do agree with you. Um, he you should got not marry that, that child. Old, yeah. old, old crone. You're, you're <laughs> sure right about Kimmy. <laughs> wow. Uh, I love, I, and this is, again, so I love Julia and I love Jules. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of me was, I, I think as a teenager and as a closeted teenager, because I, I, I think a lot of like, why do I relate to these films and these characters? Yeah. And to me at that point, I think there was a cynicism about romance. Mm. And so I was like, you know, I'm queer, I'm closeted. I can't really talk about my crushes with my friends. I can't really have crushes. I can't have boyfriends. I can't have yeah. like, I can't have a meet cute. I can't have a boy meets boy. Um, so of course I was going to relate to the one character that I saw who was like, oh no, we're destroying this wedding. And yeah. <laughs> uh, F this little tiny, you know, child bride. And this I'm blonde to, heiress. This blonde heiress. Like we're, we're having none of that. Uh, we're going to destroy this wedding. We're going to, you know, do everything in our power to sort of destroy this entire institution. And I was like, yes, yes. I can, <laughs> I, I'm totally team Jules, totally team Jello. None of this creme brulee bullshit. <laughs> Get like, the fucking creme brulee out of here. Out of this, I yeah. can be Jello. No, you Jello cannot be creme brulee. <laughs> A lesson to live by: creme brulee can never be Jello. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're Michael. You're in a fancy French restaurant. You order creme brulee for dessert. It's beautiful. It's sweet. It's irritatingly perfect. Suddenly, Michael realizes he doesn't want creme brulee. He wants something else. What does he want? Jello. Jello? Why does he want jello? Because he's comfortable with jello. Jello makes him comfortable. I realize compared to creme brulee, it's Jello, but maybe that's what he needs. I could be Jello. No. Creme brulee can never 
be Jello. You could never be Jello. Have to be Jello. You're never gonna be Jello. I think that is such a category of the queer experience is watching things and I my area of focus is like genre films and horror and mm. the amount of queer folks that I talk to who have a real connecting point in horror of not just necessarily like the I you know relating to the monster like Frankenstein cast out by his maker kind of situation but people who watched Carrie and thought yeah I wanted a fucking burn down prom yeah like the aspect of watching these films and connecting to monsters or connecting to evil women particularly whose job it becomes in these movies to wreck a sanctified institution and queer folks watching these stories and be like these sanctified institutions don't want anything to do with me so I too want to burn them to the ground I want to yeah. burn down prom yeah I wanted to burn down Kimmy's wedding <laughs> yeah. ridiculous because also when we talk about this ridiculous wedding there's like four-day wedding event with like yes. ice sculptures. Like <laughs> there was there was also something about this is sort of a class-based thing. I was like, we need to eat the rich. Like I, this is a sports <laughs> journalist who's like apparently barely seeking by. She's a, you know, a food critic who's like doing well for herself in New York. Yeah. I don't, this, these rich people, they can, no, no. I don't want any of this. I don't, know. <laughs> Let's go to karaoke. That sounds like my jam. Sports, no, no. We're not doing any of that. I love the, you know, there's bad things in in older movies, like old, pretty old older movies, where it's like women fighting women and like, like just really catty bitchy shit that's like, you know, it's not a great representation thing, but it's also true sometimes. And the thing I love about this movie is that our, our hero is also an anti-heroine in some ways. Like, she's showing up to fucking embarrass the bride. <laughs> she is showing up not necessarily to hurt him, for right. wanting to marry a kid, she's like, I am going to sabotage Kimmy. And Kimmy, to her credit, the entire movie is just relentlessly herself. Yeah. And she's only welcoming of Jules. And she is only kind. And it is still true that someone can be Kimmy and be that. And you can still be like, fuck her. Fuck her. Yeah. <laughs> like, that, like, you know what? You want to think, like, I think Olivia Rodrigo has a whole song about that on Sour. Like, <laughs> Like, now I'm like, I'm a bitch because I'm just dragging her down. And honestly, she seems really pretty and she seems really nice. And this is yeah. just me being an asshole. Like, does tearing her down make me feel better? Like, I, having that as rom-com representation for the person that we're rooting for, not having him be marrying someone who is awful, that you're like, yeah, Jules has to ruin this situation. Like, no, I like that Jules is kind of a dickhead. Yeah. Well, and I I think that seems, that's such a, such a romantic comedy trope, like, the other person is usually so career driven or like yeah. they're cold or they like really can't, they don't, are, aren't great with kids or mm -hmm. we are always given a reason to like root for our heroine. And here yeah. it's like, oh no, no. <laughs> if you're going to be rooting for the heroine, the movie's not really going to help you because Kimmy is lovely and fabulous. And apparently she can sing and charm a crowd with a stupid song <laughs> yeah. and karaoke. And her family is hilarious. Um, and there's just something about, yeah, we're just going to make it really hard. And I was like, no, if you're going to go in with Jules, you're going to go in with Jules and know that it, the, <laughs> everything's stacked against you. Um, but also, how could you, I mean, again, I, I think Julia's hair has never looked better. Like those curls wow. and those sunglasses. Wow. I love her, uh, like, purple crop top that she's wearing, which is, like, <laughs> yeah. running around. Like, there's just some, there's an effortless coolness about her in in this film that, you know, sometimes I think, 
there's like Julia, the movie star and think I hear she feels a little bit more grounded and she feels uh-huh. a little bit more. And I think it's because she's playing a villain. And I think she hadn't been able to like do that in a way. And she said she's having so much fun and has such great chemistry with Dermot, with Cameron, with Rupert Everett. With um, Rupert Everett. I think one of, to that point, one of the really standout gay best friend characters of the era. Like, what he is, he's just... You know, oh. thinking of the late 90s, I think when we were thinking of gay best friend, it was like that they were going to be there for the friend and they were like gassing her up. And all he does the entire movie is like, you're insane. Like, mm-hmm. he's the only sane character in this entire movie. And he's calling mm-hmm. it straight. And he was like, you really shouldn't do this. You're being, just be happy for him. Just be <laughs> doing that. And then like, only begrudgingly does he get involved. But like, he is the voice of reason. And so it's it's hard to then be like, trying to be like, oh, he's just a gay best friend. Because actually he, he plays such a crucial role in being like the only person who is sane in this entire circus of a wedding. Which does feel like being the gay person at a straight wedding. <laughs> right. You're like, <laughs> my just God. Just like, all right, let's relax about this. I think SNL had a sketch, I think, from this year where it's like, Bo and Yang is like the 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 gay best friend that gets invited to every every bachelorette party <laughs> kind of situation, and it feels like like that would be Rupert as well. Just like, yeah. all right, everybody, let's just ha- cooler heads need to prevail right now. Let's have some fucking perspective. Yeah, he was in love with me every day for nine years. I can make him happier than she can. Yes, I am breaking her heart in the short run, but really, really doing her a gigantic favor. She would be so miserable tagging along after this insensitive doofus. Jules, do you really love him? Or is this just about winning? Seriously. As a cinema historian, chronicler, um, Mm -hmm. archivist, (laughs) um, I want to talk to you about star power with these two actresses, with Natalie Portman and Julie. Two of our great actresses, no question, absolutely. But there is just something to it that, like, I was in, um, I we would do, when I worked at Vulture, we had the annual Vulture Fest event, and the first one that we did in Los Angeles, Natalie Portman was on the cover of our fall awards issue, and that was when she was running with Jackie. Mm. And the, we, I was, like, in the green room. It was, like, our Saturday night, so it was, like, our most sort of big deal evening. And there was all kinds of cool people in that room. Like, Issa Rae was in there, and I think she was talking to Lena Waithe. And we just had all oh, in, and, like, I think Darcy Carden was there. Like, there was just neat people <laughs> in that room. But then there was also Natalie Portman. And there was a halo of space around <laughs> Natalie Portman that no one got in. And it was like you were watching people who were already fam- and like hip young famous, like watching them like look over their shoulder to look at Natalie Portman. Amazing. And it was like uh, it was so amazing, like just being and watching the different gradations <laughs> of what it is to be a star of what it is to be famous. And yes, Natalie had been around longer and she but like it was also just like. Like you could just hear the choir singing around her and you expect to look at her and be like, maybe be like, oh, well, she's just like everyone else. No, you look at Natalie Portman, you're like, she's not like everyone else. No. So I have I have two stories to share about this because I I've been in the presence of both Natalie and Julia, but never in a professional setting. Okay. so one I was this was probably like 2009. So it was like right before Black Swan. Ooh, good and time. I was, good, good time. So Natalie was like, she's again in my head. She's like the biggest person in the world because I'm like, yeah. oh my god. But I was at, I was out clubbing on like a Friday night, sometime down in, down in New York City, and my friend was like, oh my god, is that Natalie Portman? And I, 
it was sort of like slow motion, like turning around, kind of like in closer, like turning around and being like, <laughs> is she? And I could not move. Like she literally like froze me. And in my head, That's I was like, so you real. should just, you should just go up. Cause she was just like drinking, like having friends. Like it was a very small club. Like she wasn't in a VIP yeah. thing. And I was like, I could, I could just go up to her, but there was something, you're right. It's like sort of like Halo. I was like, I can't, I can't just go up to Natalie Portman and say hi. I can't cross um, this line. <laughs> I can't cross this line. And then the other was with Julia. Um, I was having um, lunch at ABC Kitchen in New York a few years ago, two, three years ago, four years ago with my then husband. And I saw her walk in and God, sit she down. she still got it. And all my, again, my partner at the time thought that I was fainting. He was like, <laughs> are you okay? Because all the blood had like drained and I was literally having, I was having a physical reaction to just I being can't. in the same as Julia. And I yep. think there is, there is something about the two of them. And when we think of star power, I think, yeah, it's sort of this force and it embarrasses me. Cause it was like, I write and I, I, I've interviewed folks. I've been on junkets. Yep. Like, it's not like, I'm not, I don't get starstruck. I don't right. normally get this, but the two of them, and I think is because I have such, I mean, they don't know this, but we have a history together and we've known each other for decades. Well, and I think that's, I think that's a, I, I, and I want to tie that back to your, to your book with like the aspect of like what we learn about desire from movies and this way that like it is, I will just, I will always be powerless before sort of like that glitz and that Mm. like the glamour of images on screen and the way that it is, these things are disseminated out in mass to make intimate emotional connections with each person that watches them. And the instant it leaves the hands of the creator belongs to whoever sees it. And then they can make it whatever they want. So like in terms of like, you know, if you're exposed to whether it's very little, like say popular culture growing up, and like you said, you're watching these same five pay-per-view movies <laughs> on a loop over and over again, or you have the vast expanse of like all of cinema available to you, like the way we learn about the world and ourselves and what we want and what we need and what we could want and what we could need is unbelievable the power that this thing has. Oh, yeah. And to me, it's always about also learning the kind of the grammar of life. I was like, oh, this is how the story goes. or this is how the mm. sentence goes. Like, oh, we're supposed, this is what I'm supposed to do. Like, boy meets boy or boy meets yeah. girl. Or girl meets, like, there's a way in which we learn through characters and through desire, but also the kind of stories that we're allowed to tell. Like, mm-hmm. I think it's it's hard to sort of imagine different ways of being when we have the same kind of stories. So mm-hmm. whenever something unlocks something, I was like, oh, that's a different story. And I think that's why I felt with Closer, because Closer begins like a romantic comedy. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, guy, it's a girl, it's a meet cute. And, and then, and you're like, oh my God, they have such great banter. And then slowly it unravels to something else. So it's like, oh, that's not a story I've seen before. Mm-hmm. And because it sort of like cuts from scene to scene and there's always like these gaps of months or years in between um I was like oh there's a different kind of grammar and story structure happening here and it sort of short circuits any kind of way in which you're thinking about it It was like oh this is not how the story goes but this Mm -hmm. is how the story could go and Mm -hmm. so it, it it's again this idea of like giving me different templates that I could follow or that teaches me that I could break out of those templates that because they're and I think this is also what Closer does really well. It's like everyone thinks they, they're in some sort of story and every scene is like, oh, no, you're in a different kind of story. Mm-hmm. You thought you were in a happy ever after, but then you meet a photographer 
Um, <laughs> or you thought you were in this like uh, sexy romp internet uh, fling and then suddenly you're in a farce or something. Yeah. <laughs> and at every moment, it's like it keeps switching and you're like, oh my God, I can't hold on to anything because it, it keeps being appended over and over again. And that to me was also so, so thrilling. It, it teaches you even in the things that it's uh, not showing you and not not telling you. Well, and I guess my my final question to you would be: um, This is this like closer is very much a movie about desire and and um, in romantic comedy a structure about desire in my best friend's wedding. What was what is perhaps for you a movie that's not necessarily about desire, but that for you mm. is? Oh my god! I feel like I should have something really quickly a movie that's not about desire, but that is. But you're like, but you know what? For Manuel Betancourt, it sure is. <sighs> I mean, I, I talk a little bit about it, it, this in 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 the book in that first chapter. I think Disney movies have ah, a lot okay. of desire and have a lot of desire because of their absence. Um, so I think of something like Beauty and the Beast is such a sexless movie, and <laughs> yet and yet you have the shot that I still remember and will always play over and over in my head is Gaston singing how every last inch of him is covered with hair and then yeah. he rips his shirt off and the, it, his pecs take over the entire screen. <laughs> and every time I'm like, oh, what else is as full? Like how hairy is he in other places? And it's a moment where like, oh, this movie that's not really about desire, that's about yeah. love and tenderness and getting to know one another and dancing um, has these like, pockets of desire that are sort of like shining through and like the triplets who are obsessed with Gaston, like they're (laughs) the engine of desire. And they're like, Oh my God, how are you not falling for him? We're all swooning. Yeah. Um, Yeah. They're like sweaty, sweaty, horny women. Yeah. Yeah. But they're the psych, right? Like they're not really the central story, but, but I love those moments where like, it's, it's sort of Disney's trying to clamp that down. And then it's sort of like (laughs) they erupt on the other end and, you know, there's Hercules who are like these beautiful like muscles and he's like mm-hmm. a gym bunny and <laughs> his like, he, there's this moment where he's like, he's measuring his bicep and he breaks the measuring tape. And I was like, yeah. yes, yes, more <laughs> of that. Uh, but I don't think it was ever designed to be like, oh, we're going to make this like tiny scene in an animated Disney movie, a really horny one. Yeah. Um, but it's everywhere. I mean, I, I, as soon as you start noticing, they're like, oh, right. Desire, no matter how we... Every every story is about desire, whether you want it or not, and I think it's it's. Well, maybe I just it find is, it everywhere. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's true. It is. It is. It's amazing how like 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 I think I I like the idea of like starting a conversation with like closer in my best friend's wedding and then ending it on Disney yes. as just like a because like no matter what the corporate mandate is, there are still human beings that animate those images, and those yeah. human beings can only animate from their own ability and experiences and subconsciously their own desires too. Like, how do I make this as compelling as possible for an audience? Well, yeah. And then well, you, you go from you, there. And then you do. Well, and the funny thing about Gaston and Hercules was that they were both animated by a gay animator, which all of a sudden makes sense. And I was like, <laughs> oh, of course, of course it was. Of course. Yes. Going. Well, that's, that's the bookend going from, Chris Evans being shot by gay <laughs> photographers for Flaunt, a magazine yeah. I'm pretty sure for with, with uh, longtime editor-in-chief was uh, a gay man to uh, Hercules and Gaston being animated by gays as well. 
Yeah. Hey guys, surprise. Everything you love is gay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You're welcome. Everything you love is gay. Thank you, Manuel, for <laughs> coming here and consecrating the thesis of everything you love is gay for the Feeling Seen <laughs> podcast. <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> Happy to. Thank you so much to Manuel Betancourt. You can pick up his book, The Male Gazed, on hunks, heartthrobs, and what pop culture taught me about desiring men. And the audiobook just dropped this week as well. And now, my one quick thing before I go, we're going to pivot away from uh, what pop culture taught us about desiring men, and we are going to go to what Tom Cruise movies teach us about respecting the women of action cinema. Uh, years and years ago, in my, my first year at Vulture, which I'm 2016, uh, I believe it was my first year there, I wrote an article called The Best Place for Women in Action Movies is Next to Tom Cruise. And while that the landscape has changed, thankfully, since that time, and women are shouldering their own big-budget, blockbuster, mainstream action movies, women have always been out here in action cinema. This is not new. Uh, Mako Kaji, Pam Greer, like, women are action cinema. That has always been the case. But I'm saying, like, in terms of, like, your Wonder Woman, your Captain Marvel, your Atomic Blondes, like, things have shifted in that regard. Thank God. Awesome. Rad. Um, A-list action, big-budget spectacle. Charlize Theron, get your bag, go. Uh, But it is still true that if you're going to be in a man's franchise, if you're going to be in a man's action movie, really, for the ladies, there's no better man's franchise to be in than Tom Cruise's. He is dicey figure, problematic figure, um, magnanimous star. This is something we know about Tom Cruise. Like, there's an article that also went up on Vulture during my time that was, like, 20 suspiciously nice stories about Tom Cruise. And it was just, like, people who have worked with him being like, yeah, he fucking remembers my birthday. He still sends me presents. He knows everybody. Like, just people being like, this guy, this guy is an ambassador of the films he works on. And he, you know... He is, he is, as I said, a magnanimous star, uh, a true star in, in the, you know, rare sense of the word these days. But th- throughout the Mission Impossible franchise, you know, you get a little dabble of Carrie Russell in Mission Impossible 3. You get like the barnstorming, incredible appearance of Rebecca Ferguson as Ilsa Faust when she shows him in this franchise. I can never remember if it's in Rogue Nation or not that we first see her. Um, but when she shows up, you know she shows up with that that yellow silk dress, aiming a sniper rifle, with her leg like mounted up on a in a in a bathroom stall, effectively like looking out, ready to shoot a guy, looking like a billion dollars. And then she kills guys with her thighs, and then that became like the move that every woman in every action movie in America had to do for a minute because it was like, well, Ilsa Faust did it, and that changed all of us. So now we have to like replicate that fight choreography so many other places. Um, Ilsa Faust came in was an absolute like hurricane. Leia Sado, one of your great silent assassins. Paula Patton, drop her in there. For, you know, a great little, like, side agent effect. The female co-stars in a Tom Cruise movie have always been a very respectfully featured part of his ecosystem. And as Tom Cruise, like, in the post-Vanilla Sky era of his life, is basically an asexual um, 
action icon. Like, in the way that, like, kind of, like, The Rock, like, never fucks in his movies, but, there's, like, his movies are littered with dick jokes about, like, how endowed he is. Like, you watch Hobbs and Shaw, and it's just, like, I love that movie, and it's, like, an extended dick joke back and forth between Jason Statham and The Rock, like, about who's, who's, who's bigger than the other. But, like, Tom Cruise is kind of, like, He's like this, he has like this sort of messianic quality almost of like a Vin Diesel, but without the sheer over the top ham handedness of a Vin Diesel. Tom Cruise is there to be like, hey, everybody, you can all feel safe because I'm here to protect you. Like this, there's a line in Dead Reckoning where Tom Cruise like vows to Haley Atwell, the Haley Atwell, um, I can, like, promise you that your life will always matter to me more than my own. And that's, like, the synthesis of, like, a Tom Cruise as an action figure. But we're here to talk about the ladies. And you heard me say Haley Atwell. But you know who else we can say? We can say Rebecca Ferguson as Ilsa Faust. We can say Vanessa fucking Kirby as the icy white widow, who also shouts out to Hobbs and Shaw. She's excellent in that. Um, That trio alone is, like, a selection of my faves. Haley Atwell is so great. And it's always so fantastic to see her because she, like Rebecca Ferguson, is one of those women where it's like you have all the parts, you have all the, you have all the X factor things that Hollywood says like you get this and you can succeed and be famous. And yet I'm like, why isn't Haley Atwell in everything? Why isn't Rebecca Ferguson in everything? Like you guys have all the things. How how are we shortchanged by both of you? But in addition to Kirby Atwell and Ferguson, you know who else we get in Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One? We get Palm Clementiev. We get. That adorable little alien woman from Guardians of the Galaxy, we get her in this as one of your characteristically silent assassin women. We love a literally strong silent female character in action, but oh my god, the ferocity, the ferocity of this performance, like, she is, this is normally with a silent killer, a silent female character, they kind of just, like, brood, and it really just seems like a substitute for a, a male screenwriter not knowing how to write, like, quippy dialogue for a woman, but, like, you feel like Palm, whose character, it's named, her character is Paris, in this movie, you feel like Palm Clementief, she doesn't need to say anything, Paris doesn't need to say anything, because she will communicate every single seething assassin thought to you with her rageful eyes. The Face acting that Palm Clementief is doing in part Dead Reckoning Part One is so every she chews up every scene. She's stealing the frames every time she's there. I, I saw people on Twitter like who saw it before I did being like, "Hey, by the way, guys, Palm Clementief." It's like you I saw couldn't have been more right. I was fist pumping every time she came on screen. I was like practically high fiving friends in the row that we were sitting in together, and and just all three of these women get the chance to be featured, to serve. And yes, do not settle for supporting actor roles. Do not settle for being uh, a side part in some man's story. But I'm saying, if you're going to be in some guy's action franchise, if you hit the lottery, it's going to be Tom Cruise. And you are going to be able to feast with that character throughout the course of it he's going to lift you up he is going to allow you to shine and that is how we get incredible breakout performances within the mission impossible franchise like when ilsa faust was brought into our lives like when paris was brought into our lives in part one. Oh god i i just i gotta hope we see more of her i gotta hope i, I hope they knew exactly what they had with this character and that she was gonna jump off and that they're like if you thought you liked her in part one get guess what's gonna come in part two because she is so teed up and like 
is Haley Atwell like it's like hey if Tom Cruise finally is too aged to r- drive a motorcycle off a cliff one day like are we passing this franchise off and are we passing it off to a lady to be the focal point to be the fulcrum point really between like a Ving Rhames and a Simon Pegg to carry the burden of the Mission Impossible force I don't know I'm so excited to find out uh Palm Haley Vanessa Rebecca Give me that shirt with all the ampersands. That's that's my gang now. That's that's my core four now of Dead Reckoning Part One. Core four. Shouts out to you, Scream Six. Um, but anyway, that's our show. You can follow us on Twitter at Feeling Scene Pod or send us an email at Feeling Scene at MaximumFun.org. If you want to follow me, I'm Jor Crew on Twitter, and the show is produced by Marissa Flaxbart. Our senior producers are Kevin Ferguson and Laura Swisher, and this is a production of Maximum Fun. Maximum Fun, a worker-owned network of artist-owned shows. Supported directly by you.